If you would turn back with me to our previous scripture reading from the Epistle to the Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 3. And our text this evening is just what you have there in verses 10 to 14. Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. As we consider this text briefly this evening, friend, I would remind you that as we looked at the preceding verses together, we, we saw that the apostle was making an argument. But really in those preceding verses from 6 to 9, the apostle was making really the first component of a broader argument. You see, the apostle in this moment, as he writes under the Spirit's inspiration, he comes to us to train our minds and our thinking about the sublimest and most sobering of things. He focuses our attention, first of all, on the blessing, and in its elongated form, the blessing of Abraham. And in our text this evening, he completes that thought that he began, but he does so by focusing our attention on the curse. Again, in its elongated form being the curse of the law. And so the apostle sets before us, really, from verses 6 to 14, a single argument that focuses both on the blessing of God and on the curse that comes from the law. And I want you to see how he makes this single argument. As you look at verse 6, you'll notice that he begins with a quotation, a quotation from Genesis 15, in which he says very clearly that Abraham was both blessed, and he also tells us how he came to know that blessing. The blessing was that he was counted righteous, and he came to know that because he believed. In other words, the blessing that Abraham enjoyed was the blessing of justification by grace through faith. In verse 7, the apostle makes another step in the argument. He demonstrates that then all of those who have like faith are of necessity the children of Abraham, and so have themselves an interest in that gracious covenant. But in verse 8, he makes another, he, he draws our attention again to a quote. He takes us back to the promise of the engrafting of the Gentiles. And note what the apostle says. In that text of sacred scripture, you and I are told that the Gentiles will have the like blessing of Abraham, which again, to complete the thought, Paul is saying clearly that blessing that comes only by grace through faith. When he says the Gentiles will be blessed in Abraham, he is saying they will be blessed with the same blessing through the same instrument. That's his argument. But then as you come to verse 10, he begins that transition. Again, he does so with another quote, this time from Deuteronomy 27, in which he shows clearly that the law curses all sinners. And putting it positively, he says pointedly that the law demands perfect and personal obedience in order to be freed from the curse. That's verse 10. But in the next verse, he brings out another quotation, this time from the prophet Habakkuk. Quoting Habakkuk 2, he shows, first of all, really by way of implication, that all men are cursed. He doesn't really describe for us at this point, immediately after verse 10, the fullness of that thought. But drawing that conclusion, which of course should stand to reason, the curse of the law falls upon all because all have sinned. But in quoting Habakkuk 2, the apostle actually does two things at once. 
He says, though all are of necessity under the curse of the law, nevertheless, there are some who are righteous in the sight of God. There are those who are just men. And not only does he say that there are those who are just in the sight of God, he also tells us how they come by that righteousness. He describes them as those who live by faith. Now what you find in verse 11 is something that's striking. You find, of course, the apostle making those two arguments at once. And he draws a conclusion from there in verse 12 that we can't miss. He says that these two principles of life, either obedience to the law so as to stay out from under its curse, or living by faith, those two ways of life are antinomous. One or the other. There is no mixture. You are either under the curse of the law and living so as to satisfy it, or you are those who are just in the sight of God and live by faith. There is no mixture. That's the apostle's point. But then he brings something of an explanation into into our text, again by quoting another text of Scripture, this time Deuteronomy 21. In In verse 13, he shows us, first of all, that this is not fideism. This is not faith in faith. What he's doing here is he's showing us clearly that, that those who are just, who live by faith, have an object of their faith. And in verse 13, he tells us that the object of that faith is Christ. Christ who has redeemed them from the law. But, but then he adds this point, and this is where the quotation from Deuteronomy comes into play. He shows us pointedly that the reason why these ones are just, the reason why these ones are delivered out from the curse of the law is because Christ has been made a curse for them. You see, up to this point, the apostle has said that the instrument by which men are made righteous before God is by faith. But if you like, what are the mechanics? In verse 13, he provides those for us. It is looking to a Christ who has been made a curse so as to deliver his people out from under it. But then, beloved, as you come come to verse 14, you recognize that now the argument that he began in verse 6 comes to its conclusion. Note where he takes us back to in verse 14. The blessing of Abraham. The apostle hasn't left that theme at all. In fact, what he's done instead is he's he's aimed, really, to show us how the blessing of Abraham could come upon those who are under the curse of the law. And in this case, he's keen to show that it comes to the Gentiles through Christ, redeeming them, being himself made a curse in their behalf. And so his focus is first of all Gentiles, but then he makes it universal at the end of the verse. All. All receive this benefit from Christ through faith. The word, the promise of the Spirit, really in the original is, should be translated spiritual promise. The idea is that promise that was made to Abraham now comes to all, Jew and Gentile alike, through one means. Through faith in Christ who has redeemed himself, cursed for them. Now, beloved, as you look at this text then, there's so many sublime themes, and in such a concentrated form. So many texts of Scripture that have really been set before us, and, and so many conclusions drawn from them in such a short space. 
And we could distill this in a way to, to perhaps make it more manageable by simply saying the Apostle's argument is, is that really you are either saved by grace through faith in Christ or you're under the curse of the law. And, and we would be right. Friend, remember, remember the context. The apostle is dealing with Judaizers, and these, these folks were not denying grace. They were not saying that men could stand upon their own merits. This is the point where we often miss, but it's crucial to the apostle's argument. What scripture is saying to us clearly is, is, is not just, is not just that, that those who would live only by the merits of the law are under the curse. But in this context, friend, the apostle is saying, those who would attempt to mix grace and the covenant of works are still under the curse. That was the Judaizing heresy. The Judaizing heresy did not deny grace. Instead, what it did is it wanted to supplement it through meritorious obedience. What Paul is saying here is clearly, there is no mixture. The attempt is futile. You are either those who are just and who live by faith, or you are those who are trying to merit something by your own obedience, and so are still under the curse. No mixture. And so, Christian, really the theme that I'd like us to think on this evening is just this, that the legalist and the Christian differ in their expectations and ends. The legalist and the Christian differ in their expectations and ends. And I want us to take that just as the apostle presents it to us. I want us to take it, first of all, in the case of the legalist. He describes them for us here in our text as those who are of the works of the law. Striking turn of phrase, isn't it? He says they are of the works of law. And, and, and the idea behind that is, is these are those who stand upon, or rather rest in their obedience for that blessedness that Abraham enjoyed. You remember the blessing of Abraham stands over the apostles' argument crucially. And what he's saying here pointedly is those who are legalists, those whom he's addressing here, are those who are standing upon their own works so as to achieve what was given to Abraham. They are of the works of the law. But then he says this, these ones are in fact under the curse. They may be striving for the blessing that Abraham enjoyed, justification and friendship with God, but in fact they are under the curse, not the blessing. And why is that, says the apostle? In our text, he emphatically reminds us, because no man is justified by the law. That's the apostle's argument, the legalist. He stands upon his obedience. But even as he stands upon his obedience and expects, expects those works to do some good for him before the bar of heaven, the apostle says it's all futile. He's under the curse nonetheless because he, like all of mankind, has that way shut to them. The covenant of works is no means of salvation to them. That's the apostle's argument. Theirs is an expectation a futility that ends in everlasting damnation. And so, beloved, the legalist in our text expects good from his works, 
but he ends in a curse. What is this expectation? As we try to apply this text to ourselves, what is the expectation in view? Well, friend, the scriptures describe for us with the legalist his expectation quite clearly, don't they? He that trusts to his own righteousness is the legalist. That's how the prophet Ezekiel presents the legalist to us. One who trusts in his own righteousness. The apostle puts it to us a different way in Romans 10. These are those going about to establish their own righteousness. These are those, in other words, the apostle and the prophet both say, who have given themselves over to their own piety. In other words, in their acts of devotion, and their seeming acts of obedience, they find hope. This is how they barter with God. They would establish their own righteousness in the court of heaven. But as you look again at the context in Galatians, you'll remember that the apostle here is not dealing with the absolute neonomian. In other words, he's not dealing with the man who is saying there's no room for grace, or even that there's no need for grace. He's dealing again with those who would mix, as it were, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. He's dealing with those, in other words, who would say you have to lodge some hope in your obedience, and the remainder you lodge in Christ. You work to a certain degree so as to achieve some grace from the Lord. Note, beloved, in this text, the apostle says that's legalism. These ones are under the curse still. You see, beloved, in this text, what you and I are so powerfully reminded of is is that truth. That the gospel of free grace comes to sinners And it says that even your humiliation merits you no good thing before God. St. Augustine put it this way. When the gospel of free grace comes to a man and the man is duly convinced, the man repents of his repenting. He sees that even his acts of repentance and faith of themselves merit no good from the hand of God. They may be instrumental but they merit nothing. Friend, how easily do we fall back into this mixture? How quickly are we to esteem our humiliation, the basis upon which God should deal graciously with us, as though our humiliation could stand in its own, as though our humiliation and our repentance didn't stand in need of mediation, as though these things could stand naked and without Christ. Make no mistake, beloved, the apostle is dealing with that, that inclination. He's dealing with our hearts as well. And he says here that those who persist in this, these ones are yet under the curse. That is their end. But I think perhaps, beloved, as we think of an illustration the one that perhaps should come to mind most readily is the one that we read from Matthew 22. It's a striking, it's a striking parable for so many reasons. The, the king, the marriage feast that he establishes, it's a wonderful feast. 
There the text reminds us powerfully that that everything was prepared. There was nothing lacking in the king's provision. Free and full provision was found in his house. And moreover, it was the king who sent out the invitations in the first place. He sent them out to this feast that he provided of of his own bounty. And all as an expression, as an overture of love, so that they could be honored in being in the presence of the marriage of his son. Overtures of grace and sufficient grace. But then you remember, of course, that these who received the invitation first were not worthy, and they fell under judgment. But you remember, friend, the next section of the parable. Not only does the king still have this wonderful feast, freely inviting men to come and and to banquet with him and and intimacy, but he even goes to to the highways, to the bad and to the good, and he calls them to come in. These are those, friend, you, you recognize, in our minds we should esteem them as, as, as the offscurring of the world. These are not the nobles. These are not the, 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 the landed gentry, if you like. And the king, in his graciousness, in his bounty, invites these ones in. But then in the very final section of that parable, you have, you have that moment that often perplexes folks. Where the king walks in, as it were, to inspect his guests. And he finds one there. One who's sitting at the banquet table. One who is, as the king calls him, a friend. That is one who has accepted seemingly this invitation of friendship and intimacy. And he's enjoying the camaraderie and and all of the benefits of being in the king's house. But he stands there in his own garments. He stands there forgetting where he came. That it was the king's grace and not the man's worthiness that brought him here. He needed the king's garment to be present. And beloved, as you look at what the apostle is saying here pointedly, he's saying here, those who mix Grace and law in this way are those who would sit at the king's banquet table. But without the garment of Christ's righteousness, they are cursed still. And so, friend, the question from this text, first of all, is are you convinced of the futility of resting in your own obedience, humiliation, repentance, and even in the acts of your own faith? In any of those things of themselves, they cannot stand. All need Christ and must look to Christ and only Him. Are you intimately aware of the futility of resting in your own righteousness? That brings us to the second point, and this we close with. He takes, first of all, the legalist, sets us sets him before us rather as a clear picture of a man engaged in futility and ending in curse. But then he comes to the believer. The just, he says, are those who shall live by faith. And what's striking is in this quotation from Habakkuk 2, the idea is is that these ones who are righteous in the sight of God, these have a principle of life that is one of faith. 
In other words, friend, what Habakkuk is telling us and what the Apostle is urging us to remember is these ones have, as it were, the habit of faith. They live by faith. Allow me to put it a different way. Their life hangs upon faith. The weight of their life is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ in an act of faith. They live by faith. But I also want you to notice, friend, that in a broader sense, you should take this as also meaning that these ones are those who have a title to life or a title to live. And that title is that which comes to them by faith in the Lord Jesus. And so, friend, these are those who rest for their title to everlasting life by faith in Christ. This is the Christian. But here is the object of that faith. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And beloved, this is a wonderful reminder, isn't it, that Christianity is not fideism. Christianity is not about having faith in faith. It is not man's faith of itself that is virtuous. It is not faith of itself that merits any good thing before God. Faith is merely the instrument that lays hold of what is found in Christ. It is the object of faith, not its exercise, that is most crucial. Paul makes this so very clear, doesn't he? And so, friend, the Christian in our text is though, are those who expect good only through Christ. The Christian expects only good, good only through Christ. And, and, friend, I want you to notice, as you look at this text, the apostle lays before us something of an objection and answers it all at once. You see, up to this point, as I've already said to you, he, he, he's talked to us at length about the blessing of Abraham coming upon those of like faith. But then when he comes to the curse of the law, there's an incredible question. When he comes to Habakkuk 2, there's an incredible question. If all men are under that curse, how could any be genuinely made just in the sight of God? How does that work? And so he comes to this text. Christian, before I proceed, have you felt that personal dilemma yourself? Have you felt yourself at all under that curse that has just been described for us? Have you felt yourself charged at the bar of the law as being worthy of death and having no good thing to offer before God on your behalf? Have you, in your own conscience, felt that moment where you see your sin so clearly and conscience says it is right that someone must pay for this? It is right that someone must suffer for what I have done. If you know something of that, friend, then you understand why this, why this objection is not merely intellectual. It is a very practical question, a burdensome question that requires, requires an answer. And here's the answer. Christ was made a curse. It's a striking turn of phrase, isn't it? 
He doesn't say Christ was cursed. He says Christ was made a curse. And for what does that mean? Well, you and I are in this text are supposed to see here that the apostle is looking not only to the pains of divine wrath falling upon Christ, but what was its first cause? That the guilt of his people were imputed to him. It is both propitiation and imputation that are in view here. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ was imputed the guilt of his people so as to suffer in their stead? You know, friend, I I know that we talk at length about these things. I know that these are themes quite familiar to us. But the apostle is not not giving to us, uh, if you like, a milk toast uh, review of the gospel. He gives to us this truth in poignant terms, terms that are supposed to grip us. Christ was made a curse for us, says the apostle. What does that mean? Luther put it this way. The father said to the son, Be thou Peter, that denier. Be thou Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, cruel oppressor. Be thou David, that adulterer, that sinner that which did eat the apple in paradise. Be thou that thief which hanged upon the cross. In short, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. That's bold, isn't it? Luther is bold, but Paul is bolder still. I told you that he quoted from Deuteronomy 27. Here's the, here are the verses that precede it. That text that says, Cursed is he who fails to live according to the rigor of the law. That's the conclusion to a section of text. And let me read to you what the curse of that law is. Cursed be the man that maketh any graven image or molten image an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovereth his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that taketh reward to lay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. That's the curse that Christ was made for his people. At the bar of heaven, the holy, blameless, and undefiled Son of God stood and had the most vile, most odious sins imputed to his account so he could discharge them 
that they might go free. And beloved, the apostle, I want you to know this, the apostle is very bold. It says all of those things that, the cur- that, that belong to the curses of the law, those were that which was imputed to him. Well, that's the gospel. That's the object of the Christian's faith. And what's their end? Their end is that blessing that be really first, where we were introduced to in verse 6. The blessing that Abraham enjoyed. The blessing of being counted righteous in the sight of God. And all that that involves. Communion with God. Being able to be called friend of God. That, Christian, is your end. As we close this evening, I have two questions for you by way of examination. The first is a crucial question that comes from the first section. Do you, friend, think about your best deeds? Do you think about your acts of faith, your humiliation, as being able to stand apart from, or allow me to bring it closer to home, or as a means to merit Christ's grace? If you do so, friend, note that that's a legal humor. And here is roundly repudiated. The believer's humiliation, repentance, even his acts of faith are only acceptable in the sight of God as they are done in Christ and found only under his mediation. Beloved, your best thought, your best prayer cannot stand on its own. The second question that comes from this text is, Are you able to make a distinction between a spiritual promise and a theory? This may be a bit of a byroad, but I think it's important for us to look at this. The apostle says that the blessing that belongs to the Christian at the end of our text is the promise of the Spirit or the spiritual promise that, first of all, of course, was given to us in verse 6 as the promise that Abraham enjoyed, that blessing. But friend, remember that the apostle says that this is a spiritual promise, not a theory or an idea. There are so many who talk about the truths that we just looked at this evening as though they were simply theological ideas. And you know, and you can detect, I think I can say that modestly, when that's the case. There are those who are quite happy to talk about these interesting themes over a cup of tea. And then there are those who talk about these things as though their lives depended upon them. As though these things are realities and their whole hope is lodged in them. Friend, which are you this evening? Are you one who really trusts that this is a spiritual promise and so your life hangs upon it? Or are these just ideas The apostle is talking about spiritual promises this evening. For the Christian friend, uh, 
what more can be said than what we've already said by way of consolation? You have, you have here a clear testimony from the Word of God, doubly from the Word of God, that if you are resting in Christ, you are free from condemnation. And that you really are a friend of God. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? That's precisely what the Apostle is driving us to think about. That really is your comfort now. There are those in this room this evening who are friends of the Most High God. The curse of the law being removed. And that these ones were even adopted into his family. Those are realities, friend, not ideas. And beloved, can you personally apply this text to yourself? Are you striving through prayer to do so? To see that here, friend, your warrant and complying with that warrant holds forth these blessings in Christ. As though these things were spoken just to you. And so, Christian, the conclusion is so simple, isn't it? This is a text that should wean us away from the covenant of works. And so cause us to truly live unto God. Only those, friend, who have died to the law are made truly holy. Because it's only that principle of grace that makes men Christ-like. And so die, friend. Be resolved to die. Plead to die more. Plead to die more to self and self-righteousness. That you might live more unto God in light of these wonderful truths. Amen.